0: The world's changing. We've all sensed it. The prophecy is clear.
1: Our duty is to protect the girl and the boy, wherever they are.
0: Something happened in this world. People are going to be looking for us. Dan, I'm looking for a girl named Lyra. Welcome to The Authority, Slate's His Dark Materials podcast. It's season two, episode one, the season premiere, The City of Magpies. We're Slate's resident scholars of experimental theology. I'm Dan Kois, I'm a writer at Slate, and my demon is a prairie vole named Gilda.
1: I'm Laura Miller, and I'm a columnist at Slate, and my demon is a sea otter named Saki.
0: Welcome back, Laura.
1: Welcome back to you too, Dan.
0: Thanks. So this season two premiere is the chance for the show to catch our attention again after a year away that honestly feels like it was more like a hundred years. <laughs> feels right. like we're living seven worlds away from the world of season one here on our own lives. Oh, so true. Uh, and pretty early on in this episode, we get a moment that is really crucial for fans of the books. It's the meeting of Lyra and Will, our two main characters for this series. Let's listen to what it sounds like. Lyra Silverton, is this your house? No. I'm um, Will Parry. Finally, someone else to talk to. So this season premiere covers much of the first three chapters of The Subtle Knife, which is the second book in Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials trilogy, my favorite of them all. We see Lyra and Will learning more about Chitagaze, the city of children in another world that they've both come to. And we get to see a council of witches and watch one witch, Ruta Scotti, wreak havoc on Mrs. Coulter and the Magisterium. So today, we're going to take a closer look at witches, who they are in the His Dark Materials universe, how they're portrayed in the series, why they all have such exciting names.
1: On The Authority, we're going to do our best to talk about the worlds of Philip Pullman's books without spoiling the story of the books. So we'll fill in the blanks for those of you who haven't read the books in a while or who haven't read them at all, and we'll discuss things like demons and witches and dust and Panzerbjorn in great detail, but we won't give away anything in the plot that's in store for Lyra or Asriel or anyone else. Nevertheless, some stuff we talk about might be considered spoiler-adjacent by people with a serious allergy to knowing anything ahead of time. So, proceed
0: with caution. Listener beware. And we're here to answer your questions. If you've got a burning question about His Dark Materials, you're having trouble figuring out how to work your alethiometer, email us at asktheauthority at slate.com and we'll address it on a future show. So, let's talk about this episode one. It- but it begins with you know some side stories about witches and whatnot, but it really began for me with Lyra encountering Will in Chittagong, a city in this new world that she's come to after the events of last season's finale when she walked through the portal that Lord Azrael opened up. Uh, Chittagong looks like it's been recently abandoned for reasons that we don't know at first. And Laura, the design of the city is super striking. What does this city remind you of?
1: Well, it's a Mediterranean-style hill town, but it's built on this little peninsula out in in the sea. So it's both like a port town and a hill town. Mm -hmm. And it's very much the kind of place that you would visit on a trip to Italy. I really love the production design on this, beginning with the weird stairway that cuts back and forth, going up from the docks into the actual streets of the city, which is an echo of some stairs, some sort of M. C. Escher stairs that we see in the credit sequence, and it just suggests a kind of mind-bending quality. Chitagaza is, is a is a is a strange place in in these narratives because it's like a meeting place where not too much of the actual big action of the story happens, but still it's very crucial because things that happened in the past in Gaza are driving everything that's happening in the story now. The name means City of the Magpies in Italian, and we will later learn how fitting that that name is. But the main thing to know about it now is that it's been a city of merchants and scholars. It's sort of like in the embodiment of a Renaissance city, and we see a recurring decorative motif on the buildings which are angels, and they're especially prominent on the tower at the center of the city, which is called the Torre degli Angoli, which is Italian for the Tower of the Angels. The Chitagaza is weirdly deserted except for these gangs of feral kids, and one of the kids explains to Lyra and Will that the city has suffered from a plague of specters, which are these Invisible entities, or at least they're invisible to children, that only attack adults and just sort of suck their soul out of them, basically, and leave them like zombies.
0: The one other thing I'd add about the city is that it's it is like a Renaissance city in that it's a center of of merchants and commerce and innovation. It seems like innovation, you know, of the kind of unique ways that innovation presents itself in the different worlds of these books, but it's also It resembles closely a city of the present in our own world and that there are, you know, there are bottled sodas and there are ovens that work and cafes and produce. It seems like a town in Italy, like right around the time of call me by your name, maybe like like a 1980s Italian hill town. Um, And there are obvious sort of differences between our world and this one. The clothes seem a little bit more old timey. The stoves might be wood fired, but there's still electricity but it shares in its design a lot of qualities of the Renaissance while still having some aspects of the modern day. And it's also infested as we get told by this gang of children that liar and will meet by these specters. And we actually get a glimpse of one adult in the city in the course of this episode, an adult who clearly has been attacked by these specters and has had the life sucked out of him. And it's a very striking image. He's uh, pale and sort of dust covered and and he's got this vacant stare uh, and he truly looks as though everything that that is human about him has been sucked away. And he's now just a sort of shuffling shell moving through the city, almost a kind of ghost. Yeah. When Lyra meets will early in this episode, she distrusts him early on, but Pan is the one who reaches out to will and encourages Lyra to make a connection with him. He immediately sparks to will. He talks to him, a thing that, you know, we, we know from last season demons don't always do to other people and it helps Lyra understand that Will is someone who she should team up with it also serves as a helpful reminder to us of of the ways that demons influence their humans and in fact this whole episode is filled with a ton of demon stuff
1: Don't think I didn't notice. Oh hey
0: Gilda, thanks nice of you to pipe up.
1: I liked all the attention on demons in this episode. We see the witches' demons talking to each other, and Lee Scoresby and Hester. It's still
0: creepy to see people without demons, and there are a bunch in this episode, including the kids from Chittagatsi.
1: I see what you mean, Saki. By now, however, Lyra has encountered a few people who either don't have demons or are able to separate from them at some distance, like the witches. So she doesn't react with the same instinctive revulsion that she might have earlier and that we learn more from the books than from the series, because the series just really has a burden to explain something that's very natural and so natural in Lyra's world that nobody ever really talks about it, but is completely different from our own. So we know that people without demons are are repellent and like, like a mutilated person to people in Lyra's world, but she has a little bit more experience of this. Although when we first met her, she lived in a world where people always take the demon for granted. Um, With this first encounter with Will, the series has this handy way of rebooting the concept for audiences who are coming back after this seemingly really long break, even though it's only been a year. And reminding us of some of the basics, like people aren't supposed to touch each other's demons. And Lyra can actually articulate for Will what a demon is, which is it's a part of a person's self. It's not a pet. A pet. Definitely
0: not a pet. We complained about the show's underuse of demons all throughout season one. I mean, maybe complained about it ad nauseum, but this is a really nice shift, I thought, in this episode. It's almost like Jack Thorne was listening.
1: Dan, get over yourself.
0: (sighs) Okay, okay, okay.
1: We also talked about how the humans and their demons were not touching as much as they do in the book. That sense of like physical connection was not as present in the series as it is in the books. And it seemed to me like there was a little bit more actual physical contact between Lyra and Pan, which is probably made it easier by the fact that there's now only one demon instead of a demon for every single character. Uh, but that also I, I noticed and appreciated.
0: All right. So it's crucial that they get the Lyra-Will friendship right. I think for, for many people, including me, that's the heart of these stories. Like the cosmology is great. The great epic narrative, the resonances with Milton and Blake. But what I'm in this for is for the friendship the growing relationship between Lyra and Will. That's what is, that's what I connect to emotionally. That's what I remember the most from the books. So they got to nail it. Laura, how do you think they did? I think they did it pretty
1: well. Lyra is very Lyra. She tests Will according to her sort of urchin code of, you know, (laughs) like, can I push him around? Is he resourceful? You know, you know, what, what good is he basically? and, With Will, we see that he is almost like a kind of a proto-adult. He's more competent than she is in many ways because he's been caring for his mother. So he can cook, and he is a little bit less capricious, or well, he's a lot less capricious. He's more responsible. But he's also had fewer actual adventures because he's had to be so cautious in covering up his mother's mental illness. So we see that the two of them are Complementary in a way. And they actually do figure that out pretty quickly.
0: Yeah,
1: I mean, but the important thing about this phase of the story, though, is that there are no adults. Now, previously, Lyra and Roger had their own little adventures and scrapes around the edges of the adult world, which was sort of driving all of the action. And then when Lyra was off on her own, you know, mm-hmm. off exploring, she had Fodder Corum and John Fa and and Elise Scoresby and the witches and even Yorick as these sort of grown-up figures who were helping her and protecting her and guiding her. Or she was, you know, being moved around like a commodity or whatever by Azrael and Mrs. Culture. But now, at the beginning of this, what we know is that she is really disillusioned with, I think, all adults as a result of Lord Azrael killing Roger. And she's past the sort of hero worship phase and into the full adolescent disillusionment phase. (laughs) And she's prepared to strike out on her own. But in this case, the minute she's getting ready to do that, this sort of story provides her with another child as her her ally.
0: I mean, what a smart move on the part of Philip Pullman at the exact moment where she has become disillusioned with adults to give her a world in which Uh, in which there's an enforced lack of adults in which if if an adult shows up, they'll immediately be consumed by a specter. Lyra gets some real quirks in this episode, a a lot related to that sort of urchin code that you mentioned. And I really like that a lot. You know, I felt in season one that at times Lyra felt a little bit blank. She was always super watchful and serious, but I didn't always get, the sense of the big personality that I always think of Lyra having, the big personality that led me to name a kid after her, for God's sake. But, you know, in this episode, we have her, like, her inability to make an omelet, but her willingness to try, her total lack of interest in a shower, and her, just her, like, her basic smelliness, the way she takes over the house as soon as Will offers her a place and just claims her own room. Uh, I love those moments, and they're fun in ways that Lyra hasn't always had a chance to be fun. Uh, and that I thought was a real nice addition.
1: Yeah, Will, by contrast, is, if anything, just has uh, an overdeveloped conscience. You know, unlike Lyra, who lies and steals and does all kinds of things without much of a, a of a qualm. There, the scene where he wants to leave money, and I think that's I've always wondered what is the currency that he wants to leave, and would it be any use in Judea but, um, but you know, when he wants to leave money for the food that they take, that to me was very charmingly reminiscent of uh, Philip Pullman would hate it if, <laughs> to hear this, but of some of the scenes in the Chronicles of Narnia where the child characters debate the morality of what they're doing. Especially in *The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe*, where they take the fur coats when, from the wardrobe when they're going out into the snow, and they have this whole kind of debate about it, and then they finally decide it's okay because they're not actually taking them out of the wardrobe, <laughs> so they're not stealing them; they're they're remaining inside the wardrobe. So, to me, he's more of a traditional child hero of uh, of British literature. You know, he he he's a less feral child, but he has he carries a lot more real world weight than those child characters of the past, and more than Lyra, really, too.
0: Right. For Lyra, the adventures have been so otherworldly, and even her losses have been so otherworldly, whereas his, at least to a reader or a viewer like us, coming at it from our world, he seems those are weighty real-world problems that give a kid a kind of gravity in a story like this as opposed to the, you know, the, the epic adventures that Lyra has had. Speaking of his you know, the, the, the real, the earthy nature of his, yeah. of his character. We get this funny reminder as they approach the, the tower of angels, that one thing will has that the book, will of the book does not have is that he has an iPhone. He takes it out and takes a picture of the tower of the angels. And I like, I wonder I'm so curious what role this will play in the story because in a way it's sort of, it's almost his alethiometer, right? It's a, it's a truth telling device if you use it right. And if you can ever get service um, and I'm <laughs> curious whether they'll find a way to use that because that's a, that's a fun parallel to play with. So let's um, do a deep dive on our subjects today, which is, which is, which is, which is, <laughs> uh, so the, uh, the, the other story going on in this episode, while Will and Lyra are getting acquainted yeah. in is, uh is mostly happening aboard a magisterium summary. The cardinal, the magisterium's cardinal and pharaomic fail are there. And they've taken a witch prisoner. She was captured during the hostilities that followed Lord Azrael's opening of the window. Mrs. Coulter convinces them to let her interrogate the witch and tortures her in this quite unique fashion by tweezing out twigs of cloud pine from under her skin. Um, the witches have always seemed a little bit otherworldly, but it seems worth asking and explaining to our listeners Like, what are witches? Are they human? Are they something more? What do we know about them? Well, the witches
1: in historic materials are more than human. They have these magical powers. And most of them, of these powers, come from a kind of connection to the natural world, which is really embodied in the clown pine twigs. They can fly. They can control the weather to a certain degree. They are healers. And they have this interesting power of going unnoticed when they don't want to be noticed. They don't feel cold or heat as intensely as humans do. And they seem to be able to travel between worlds at times without suffering serious consequences. Another interesting thing about the witches is that they have no possessions, So while we never learn all that much about where they live, if they have houses or farms or, you know, if they're hunter-gatherers, who knows, it is very exciting to actually see the meeting hall depicted. The meeting hall is where the different clans of the witches, which seem to be located in specific or tied to specific places like lakes or mountains— they they assemble to meet now so so the, the different clans don't always agree and sometimes they go to war with each other um i'm personally would be very interested to know what sorts of disputes historically have led to the witches going to war against each other since owning stuff including land is is just such a major uh cause of human conflict but we we still just don't know that much about
0: them you describe it as a meeting hall and it's interesting i look at it and i I get the sense of it. I mean, they're so tied to the natural world that it seems like sort of a natural, like a, a sort of mountaintop outcropping on which they're surrounded by, they're sort of in a in a gulch inside a natural amphitheater. So it's sort of a mix of a, a meeting hall and sort of a big open air theater. Like it a seems
1: crater like or something. In. Yeah, Which makes sense yeah, because yeah. they get everywhere by flying. So they're not going to want to stay in places that have roofs. Yeah, we don't know. Did they just find this place? Is it like some kind of caldera or something? Or um, did they make it? Like, we don't know what, you know, they do, you know, if they build anything at all.
0: Um, At that meeting, Lee Scoresby is present. He's invited to join this meeting of all the different clans. And at the meeting, Ruta Scotty, one of the witch queens, makes this case for the witches joining the fight against the magisterium. And, you know, this meeting is pretty important because the books make it clear and the series implies this as well that human men don't get invited to these witch councils. This is not a common thing and it's a big deal for Lee to be there. Let's listen to what uh, Ruta has to say about why the witches, she believes the witches should join the fight.
1: Queen Scardi, Queen Seraphina Pecola, That man does not belong here. He is here at my reckoning as are you.
0: Ruta Scardi is angry. Everyone should be angry.
1: Sisters, Katya Serka has been taken prisoner by the Magisterium. I have word they are rounding up anyone who questions their authority. The way those animals in the Magisterium have cracked down upon the world since the opening. Towns tightly controlled by armies. We're out of our depth here. Shut up, Hester. So the time has come to act to show the Magisterium that their actions have consequences. And I am here to beg you. Serafina Pekela, and all the sisters here, join me in rescuing Katya. I believe we have no choice. So in Lyra's world, all of the witches are female. They have children with human men. And if those children are female, they become witches. And if they are male, they may rejoin human society. They may do some work for the witches, like Martin Lancelius does in... um,
0: In Trollocent. Yes,
1: Trollocent. According to Pullman lore, there are other worlds where there are male witches, but not in this one. Now, the witches will also live hundreds of years more than humans, which makes their relationships with men inherently painful and is the sort of tragedy behind Fodder Coram's relationship with Serafina Pecola. She still looks the way she did when they were together, and he's an old
0: man. So they fly with cloud pine and I was, I'm totally fascinated by the series treatment of cloud pine. I'd always assumed that it was a kind of, it was like Philip Pullman's way of getting around the idea that witches need to fly around on broomsticks. So it's kind of a stick. It's like a, it's like a spray of cloud pine is how he always describes it in the book. And there's a scene in, um, In the Golden Compass, where Lyra goes out to Martin Lancelis's yard and picks out a particular spray of cloud pine that Serafina Pecola has left behind. And it suggests that, you know, it suggests that out in his yard was like a little cloud pine parking lot (laughs) where lots of witches left their, their, they're not broomsticks, definitely not broomsticks. But here in the TV series, they made a kind of an interesting choice, which is that cloud pine sprigs are tiny they're very small you know in that scene with Martin Lentelius back in season 1 what we saw was Lyra choosing between cloud pine and different little jars instead of going out to the yard out to the parking lot and we see in this episode that it's actually implanted in the witch's skin it like lives inside them in some way and and aids them presumably in their power of flight and so when Mrs Coulter is torturing this witch that the Magisterium has captured she does it by like agonizingly pulling this out of her. And I found that just like a super fascinating idea the idea that it requires not just holding on to this magical device, but becoming one with it so that it affects your system like nor plant, but for magic.
1: Yeah, I gather that each witch has her own particular tree. And so we also yeah. see Seraphina give Lee a sprig of cloud pine to call her with. And that is presumably why Lenselius has all of those sprigs so that he can call right. different oh, witches.
0: Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, because he's the consul, he just needs to be able to get a witch on the phone whenever. Yeah, it's yeah.
1: like, you know, you can't communicate through it, but you can definitely, like, you know, say, I need to talk to you by... By using these things,
0: it's a super witch Rolodex. Yeah, uh, what is the deal with their names? They all seem like Finnish or Latvian.
1: Yeah, they are actually uh, so you know derived from the Finnish, and, and there is this story going around, which I I can't say how truthful it is. It might be a joke that that Philip Pullman made that he got <laughs> some of these names from just looking in a Finnish phone book. Um, they're great names. Serafina Pekla is just an amazing name and and, and so is Ruta Skadi. But there's a kind of an interesting undercurrent to this because a fascination with finishness and the kind of way that it seems like the most sort of remote, unadulterated version of Nordicness. Mm-hmm. Is is something that you see a lot in English fantasy fiction. Tolkien was obsessed with the Finnish language. He loved it and thought it was beautiful. And he based his invented Elvish languages in part on Finnish. It's associated in the minds of sort of English people who feel like they sort of have this, you know, there's sort of this weird mixture of different kinds of uh, races with Wildness and cold, the cold, you know, Arctic paganism and this kind of noble savagery. You know, it's remote and it's and it's wild.
0: You really see it in the elves, yeah. Yeah. Tolkien, like they're not only are they all tall and beautiful, they're all sort of like otherworldly in the way the witches are. Yeah.
1: So, like some of the other cultural characterizations Mm -hmm. in his dark materials, this sort of thing can feel a little dated and reductive. You know, like. Finns are all like this, you know, it's like a stereotype of the Finnish, although it doesn't, I think the biggest stereotype of the Finnish is that they are all alcoholics and the witches don't seem to be big drinkers. But, um, Mm -hmm. but at any rate,
0: Finnish people, please don't sue.
1: Yeah, no, they're, they're, they would never do that. What I like that the series has done is it's cast, um, people of color and sort of other non-Nordic types as the witches. So you get it's a little less of this sort of racial essentialism, which is sort of implied by all the the Finnish names. Like I'm sure there that Philip did not want to believe that only Finnish or Nordic types could be witches in his imagined world, but I think that he he saw a great romance in the in the far north and and that's reflected in the the Finnish names.
0: Uh, so, Mrs. Coulter is trying to find out more about this prophecy that the witches have about Lyra. The prophecy that we heard recited a little bit of in the very beginning of the very first episode of season one of this series. Um, she tortures the witch enough to hear that the that in the prophecy, there the witches have another name for Lyra. But before she can hear more, before she can hear what that name is, the the imprisoned witch calls to Yambe Aka, her god of death, and Ruta Scotti blows right into the sub and stabs her in slow motion. You know I've I think I talked last season about how much I enjoyed the way the witches fight in this series. But one thing I really do miss is something you mentioned already this this the book's version of how witches can make themselves go unnoticed at crucial moments. You know, it's like it's great that they can fight like superheroes or like Harry Potter wizards or whatever, but they also have this kind of magical modesty that allows them to go unnoticed when they want to and uh it mirrors for me Will's way of, of of avoiding the attention of teachers or social workers when he's in his world. It's this sort of rigorous, enforced, not invisibility, but unnoticeability. I'm going to read a little section from The Subtle Knife uh, from page 33 where where Serafina Pecola does this. In the book, it's Serafina Pecola who uh, sneaks into the place where the switch is being held and kills her before she can give away too much information. But here's what the book says. There was one thing Serafina could do. She was reluctant because it was desperately risky, and it would leave her exhausted, but it seemed there was no choice. It was a kind of magic she could work to make herself unseen. True invisibility was impossible, of course. This was mental magic, a kind of fiercely held modesty that could make the spell worker not invisible, but simply unnoticed. Holding it with the right degree of intensity, she could pass through a crowded room or walk beside a solitary traveler without being seen. So now she composed her mind and brought all her concentration to bear on the matter of altering the way she held herself so as to deflect attention completely. It took some minutes before she was confident. She tested it by stepping out of her hiding place and into the path of a sailor coming along the deck with a bag of tools. He stepped aside to avoid her without looking at her once. I love that. I love that. I, I just love that. It's one of my favorite examples of the sort of sideways creativity of Philip Pullman. To think of this way that witches become invisible as opposed to just like they snap their fingers and poof, they're gone, or like a fucking cloak.
1: Yeah. It's a it's a it's a kind of magic worked on the minds of people who perceive them. And later, I I believe that Will and a witch, I can't remember which one, discuss his ability, you know, his yeah. sort of invisibility skills and agree, the witch agrees that it's it's sort of a related thing, which makes me think that it might be something that Philip Pullman observed in children as a teacher. You know, that there were certain children oh, who had an expertise at going unnoticed by as adults. Ne- as
0: never children. having been one of those kids, always having been <laughs> desperate to be noticed. I'm a real Lyra. Uh, I was, I'm was. i not familiar with, yeah. them, with that.
1: <laughs> so one, um, one other thing about witches that's really important to know is that they're demons, which are always birds— can travel far from them. And this is really unusual in Lyra's world. And in a recently published story set in Lyra's world called Serpentine, Pullman gets into a little bit more detail about how they acquire this ability. And it involves a particular ritual that requires them to go to a desolated area, I believe somewhere in Central Asia, and perform this ritual. And it's It's very, it's very traumatic. I mean, Lyra finds out about it and she learns that it's an experience that completely transforms the person who has it.
0: I know witches are supposed to be good, but their demons flying so far from them gives me the creeps.
1: I don't even know that they're supposed to be good exactly. They're sort of beyond good and evil. They make their choices based on factors humans and demons can barely understand.
0: I mean, that makes witches sort of tough cells as major characters in a TV series. And so, you know, a lot of times the series leaves us with a lot of sort of majestic pronouncements from the witches and from their demons. Here's some that we get from Ruthen Serafina's demons as their humans are speaking to each other during the big council of witches. The prophecy was clear. We must find the child. The prophecy is not all there is. You risk too much. The Magisterium has thrived under your indifference. Brutus Guardi will show them we are indifferent no more, with or without your clan's help. The show really leans into those kinds of nomic pronouncements when it's not leaning into just how totally hot all the witches are with their <laughs> diaphanous robes and their tattoos, their sexy cloud pine tattoos. Uh, I hope that as time goes on, a little bit more of the spookiness of witches and, as you say, the politics of of which is what it is that these different clans really are concerned with comes through in the series as well, because I find that really fascinating about them. All right, let's talk our way through the rest of this episode near the end. We have our two parallel stories in one, Mrs. Coulter, who, who had just finished telling the Cardinal and everyone on the submarine that she is done failing. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Completely fails to get useful information out of the witch. Uh, but luckily uh, in that attack, Ruta not only um, kills the witch who'd been captured, but also stabs the cardinal. And then Mrs. Coulter makes a deal with Frommac fail to, shall we say, dispose of the cardinal so that the magisterium can take full advantage of these new worlds, which have now opened up, presumably led by Frommac Yeah.
1: And it's worth pointing out here that one of the reasons why Mrs. Coulter wants to interrogate the witch herself is that she wants to learn what it is the witches know or believe about Lyra, but she does not want the magisterium to know that. She Mm -hmm. wants to protect Lyra at the same time that she's trying to figure out how Lyra fits into... The power struggles that are going on in her world. So um, it's not just that she wants to show what a boss she is by um, succeeding at at something that everyone else fails at. She also wants to make sure that she can selectively pass on the information she gets from the witch. So this is, we see Miss Coulter um, in, you know, yet another smashing outfit as the Machiavellian Master of this story uh, she she recognizes even before the Cardinal gets stabbed, that Macphail is ambitious, he's a potential threat to her, and also that the Cardinal is a weak leader. He is denying the reality that they're all forced to confront when Azrael blows open a hole between the worlds, and he just he can't deal with the reality, and he just he the framework. Of heresy and doctrine that the cardinal lives by just cannot encompass what's actually going on. So this really makes him problematic as a leader. So as soon as she finds out that the cardinal is stabbed, and we have to remember this is as big a surprise to her as anyone else else, she just pivots and she positions herself. As a MacPhail ally. Um, she flatters him. She knows that he's motivated by ambition and that he's less susceptible to her beauty than the, than the cardinal was. It's strongly suggested the cardinal is sort of hypnotized by her sort of seductive manner. And she instantly becomes this sort of counselor, whispering in his ear and just telling him how great he is and how much she's going to help him and it shows how expert she is at working within this patriarchal um, institution. The other thing is that's important in this story is the idea that she's going to allow the cardinal to die, but she is going to take on the sin for him. Yeah. And the idea of sin as something that functions almost like a, a commodity is a really interesting one that comes up much, much later on in the story. And so it's worth noticing there that they they make a kind of trade. When her being responsible for the Cardinal's death is a trade that she's making with MacPhail, which indicates that even though these people are all big power mongers, they still actually believe that sin is a real thing.
0: Yeah, definitely Father McPhail does. And he's willing to you know sort of hand over that poker chip that poker chip of sin and she's willing to make that exchange uh, in order to get the thing that he wants that makes him able it seems to accept the power move that it's necessary for him to make i do agree with you that she looks fantastic i would like to shout out her torture boots (laughs) she has fantastic torture boots in this episode really good for torturing they seem comfortable and they're knee high. So you can be like up to your ankles and blood and you're still fine. It's,
1: it's very reminiscent of Rene Russo in the Thomas, the remake of the Thomas Crown Affair, where he just one scene after another, you just think, wow, she looks great.
0: <laughs> Except evil. Evil. Yeah. Or is she? <laughs> All right. So um, back in Chitagaze, the lithiometer tells Lyra that Will is a murderer. And that's one of my favorite moments in the book. I just want to read it because I love it so much. Uh, it's on page 28 of The Subtle Knife. She asked, what is he, a friend or an enemy? And the alethiometer answered, he is a murderer. When she saw the answer, she relaxed at once. He could find <laughs> food and show her how to reach Oxford, and those were powers that were useful, but he might still have been untrustworthy or cowardly. A murderer was a worthy companion. <laughs> she felt as safe with him as she felt with Jorg Bearnison, the armored bear. God, I love it yeah. so much. They fudge it a little bit in the series. Let's listen to how they treat it here. He's a murderer. The good kind. Just like Yorick. But there's something else about him, too. He's connected to this place. something to do here but i still love this determination from lyra that you know what once she knows he's a murderer everything is cool that is the kind of guy who she is willing to be associated yeah. with
1: she knows she's very utilitarian you know he's it's going to be useful to have someone <laughs> who has that particular skill
0: <laughs> right he's no armored bear but at least yeah. she's got something yeah uh, and then our last shot in this episode is will looking up at the tower in Chitagase with a specter whooshing around behind him this sort of Big black smoke creature. Laura, what did you think of the design of the Spectres?
1: Well, I was very curious to see how it, these creatures would be rendered. And I did like it. It owes something to the ghosts in Guillermo de Toro's Crimson Peak, which is a movie that I love. And it also has a kind of a Baroque quality to it. It's like a lot of swirling wisps of of shadow. I, I my My verdict is a thumbs up on the Spectres.
0: I give it a thumbs down. Oh, I'm not into no. it. Um, I just because well, let me read how they're described in the book, which is like quite vivid. This is uh, again from the subtle knife. This is uh, um, Ruta Scottie actually seeing some specters uh, in the country where Chitagase is. It might've been a good land to live in, but for the spectral forms that drifted like mist over the grasslands and congregated near streams and low lying water in some lights, they were hardly there at all just visible as a drifting quality in the light, a rhythmic evanescence, like veils of transparency turning before a mirror. Now, I'll grant you that that seems basically impossible to animate. That seems like the memo you write to your effects department when you want them to come back and say, yes, I will do that for you for $75 million. <laughs> and so I understand that like it's easier to do this like sort of smoky thing that, yes, Guillermo del Toro used in Crimson Peak. It reminded me a lot of the way that so many monsters now have, end up looking like the Dementors in the Harry Potter series, which which in its time when, you know, when Alfonso Coron designed them for the third Harry Potter movie, they that was a really unique design, the sense of these creatures who were underwater yet in real life with the sort of smoky trailing quality to them and the fluidity with which they move through the air. This series sometimes seems overly dependent to me on these kind of Harry Potter quirks of design, the way the witches move just like, the, you know, just like fucking Bellatrix Lestrange does in, uh, in all the Harry Potter movies. And that drives me a little crazy. And I, I recognize that, that it's a lot more menacing this way. But I, what I liked about the description of the specters is how nearly invisible they were and how seemingly in substantial they were they were literally insubstantial but yet they had this kind of dramatic hollowing out effect on their victims and when you see this thing hovering behind will you're never you're never like oh well what could that possibly do it looks like it's gonna fucking eat him like right now but i sort of like the the I like the gulf between the way they looked and the, the horrific effect that they had. But let's see when when we finally get to see a specter in action, which presumably will happen at some point. Let's see how they treat that because they they still could look awesome.
1: Well, and I would just counter that with the fact that I do not see how against the setting... Of Chita Gaza, it would be at all effective to have them just be a kind of a, a ripple or a or a or a film. I think maybe in a less colorful, less object-filled setting, maybe some place dark or spooky, you could maybe do that. But I think that they would get lost visually
0: in 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 Chita Gaza. Carrying water for the production design team. I see again, Laura Miller. No problem. I get it. Uh, well, whatever. They look like, whether, however you feel about it, they're definitely scary as shit, and there's one right behind Will. So good cliffhanger. Uh, we'll find out what happens next week when we come back to discuss episode two, The Cave. So please join us then. In the meantime, send us a line. On Twitter, I'm at Dan Coice. Laura is at Magician's Book.
1: And you can email us a question or a comment at authority, all one word, at slate.com.
0: So thanks for listening. Our producer is Phil Circus. Slate's Editorial Director for Audio is Gabriel Roth. I'm Dan Coyce.
1: I'm Gilda. I'm Laura Miller.
0: And I'm Saki. And remember, without stories, we wouldn't be human beings at all.